0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. We appreciate you listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. We don't do this podcast because we are former addicts. We don't do this podcast because we have loved ones who have suffered from addiction. We do this podcast because we feel that addiction is one of the biggest problems facing the world today, and that no matter who you are, no matter your religion, no matter your income status, no matter your race, no matter anything about you, addiction affects you. This podcast is a free resource for anybody looking for help with addiction. If you would like to help us in our fight against addiction, go to www.patreon.com theaddictionpodcast the addiction podcast 273. That's www. Patreon.com slash the addiction podcast 273 and make a donation of whatever amount you would like. Thank you for supporting us. Hello and welcome to the addiction podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel and I'm the host for this podcast. Today's episode is episode number 215. When a person is addicted to drugs and/or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatment can be overwhelming. Narcanon OH is a residential treatment facility that handles the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with a proven, evidence-based, holistic, completely drug-free step-by-step program that frees those trapped by addiction. For more information call 1-866-231-5924. Today we have an episode with a gentleman that we've interviewed before on the podcast, but he always has a lot of really good insight to give our listeners. His name is Bobby Newman, and After going from a strong moral upbringing in Southern California to a drug-related downfall that had him facing federal prison, he understands how those addicted feel and think. That's what enables him to cut through the resistance and manipulative tactics of an addicted person and help them choose life and recovery. He is a renowned interventionist. He has an over 90% success rate with those that he goes to intervene with. You know, you've heard me say it. If you've listened to this podcast and you'd listen to uh, our middle blurb, if you will, that sometimes just getting someone into treatment is the absolute hardest thing. So that's what Bobby addresses. He's successful at it. Let's talk to interventionist Bobby Newman. Bobby Newman, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I, I I know we've had you on a couple times before, but I always think that your story and what you do is so impactful to everyone that listens. So thank you.
1: You're very welcome. And thank you for having me. I appreciate being here.
0: Awesome. So because we probably have people who for whom perhaps this is the first episode they're listening to, and maybe they haven't heard our other interviews with you. Take us back and tell us about your drug history, how you got started on drugs and how that progressed.
1: Okay. Um, Well, I grew up in a small town in Southern Oklahoma and, you know, we had a different view. I mean, I was always told by my parents, uh, you know, they did the best they could at the time. And you know you do drugs i mean back in the late early 70s late 60s there was lsd was a big thing and people there was uh, some kids that got involved with that and you know it was easy to point those kids out and go, you know, if you do drugs that's what you're going to end up like and you know but then there was a confusing message because it seemed some seemed to be somewhat okay that, that alcohol was okay
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know there were get-togethers at various f- functions and you know people would be drinking beer and things like that so you know, we had the idea that alcohol was okay, but, you know, still, you need to be of age, but the other drugs were bad. So I got, growing up, I, you know, 14, 15 years old, started, you know, we'd go on fishing trips or camping trips and, you know, with the other guys my age. And we, you know, somebody would sneak us some beer and, and we'd started out like that and swearing that you would never do drugs or smoke weed or anything like that. Well, then... <clears throat> Eventually, that kind of led into when I got older in high school. I started, uh, you know, get a small town, but we were very good at sports. And, uh, you know, in, in the sports, in high school, I, you know, what am I going to do now? I kind of got bored and, you know, I got, went to a party and somebody introduced, a, you know, I'd broken up with a girlfriend and upset about that. Somebody said, hey, you know, you should try this. And I'm like, hey, you know, the alcohol always makes me feel terrible. I hung over the next day. You yeah, know, I'll try I smoked some weed, so I I started out smoking marijuana, and it wasn't like I, you know, I didn't fall off the end of the earth. I, you know, I actually had it. We ended up having fun, laughing a lot, giggling a lot. Then, oh, that wasn't too bad. So, I guess I did it again. And then by the time it just became more and more of a habit. And then by the time I went to college, somebody introduced me. I thought, well, marijuana's not too bad. Um, you know, actually now smoking marijuana regularly. And uh, somebody introduced me to amphetamines, and mm. it was a pharmaceutical and uh so then i got to where i was taking that part i would go out party night was on uh, college was a uh, thursday night so we would i uh, would could go out and drink and take part of this that uh, some of this uh it was a capsule and i could take half of the capsule and stay out and you know, drink and you know come in late and then wake up the next morning and take the rest of the capsule go to class not be hungover oh uh, wow well, that's great So then I started doing that on Friday night or Thursday night. Then it was Saturday night. Then it became more and more frequent. So I just gradually progressed from there because I didn't have that, you know, uh, effect of where, when I was younger, seeing those other kids that had taken the LSD and really kind of going on trips and not coming back.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, I didn't have that. It was like, oh, this is not too bad. I'm not, there's nobody, you know. So I just gradually got worse until it was about 20 years later, I'm looking at a, I'm 35 years old, and I'm in a lot of trouble. I'm heavily addicted to alcohol, marijuana, and amphetamines, methamphetamine, and, um, and I'm in a lot of legal trouble. So that's how it rolled out for me. <laughs>
0: right? How did? What was the legal trouble? Can you say? Or well,
1: I was pretty rambunctious guy. I mean, I love playing sports, love contact sports, love basketball. You know, what I mean that that, that involvement. So you know, going out and partying, I was always getting into something. You know, and a lot, I had a lot of friends that used drugs that would set back. They were kind of like. Very like subdued, and I just, I'm like, I'm just not that guy. I'm gonna create an effect of some sort and you know, it caused some stir something up, and so I'd get in trouble. And then, um, uh, whether it be drinking and driving, and then but but the last time that I got in trouble, which was the basically the straw, uh, I was working, I, I actually was a sheet metal worker, and uh, went down to I was running a crew, I had a shop that I was in charge of, and also had to make sure that all the materials were delivered to the job, which is on my army base. So me I'm driving to, out there to check on the job site and I have possession of methamphetamine a loaded firearm and, and a bag of marijuana. Just that,
0: like, that's all. <laughs> <Bobby>. <laughs> yeah, was just work. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So
1: I get pulled over and of course I get in a lot of trouble and, and, uh, you know, my. It, so it's just funny, but I ended up getting a lot of trouble and, uh, i was smart enough to actually negotiate my way out of that i was looking at two and a half years per charge a hundred thousand dollars per charge and i was smart enough to walk into the federal courtroom and negotiate my own plea deal and negotiate that down to twenty five hundred dollars and two weeks in jail done on weekends without an attorney and you know and that would have cost me 20 grand but i was also stupid enough to then continue to violate my probation so that's where it kind of led to where now i was kind of like funneled down into like one more mess up and you're going to prison i was the prosecutor told me that so you'd think that would be enough to motivate me to not but
0: not necessarily
1: <laughs> no no i actually showed up at my dad's house about two weeks after they they set me down and tried to get me to go to rehab at that moment and when i got out of jail they met me and they um had a brochure and you know took me to you know, to, to uh, get something to eat and um, brought the brochure out and said, we want you to go to rehab. And I had all the standard answers of no, I, this is, I know what I need to do. I can do it on my own. I could stop hanging out with my friends. I just need to go to work every day. You know, the whole standard answers that I've heard a gazillion times.
0: Famous last words.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So then, yeah, exactly. Then about um, two weeks later, I'm basically crawling Belly crawling back to my dad's house—not not really, but it was felt like that—and back spiritually, to spiritually yeah, belly cool. crawling.
0: <laughs> Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with thirty years' experience and an over eighty-five percent success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of twelve videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. We appreciate you listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. We don't do this podcast because we are former addicts. We don't do this podcast because we have loved ones who have suffered from addiction. We do this podcast because we feel that addiction is one of the biggest problems facing the world today, and that no matter who you are, no matter your religion, no matter your income status, no matter your race no matter anything about you, addiction affects you. This podcast is a free resource for anybody looking for help with addiction. If you would like to help us in our fight against addiction, go to www.patreon.com slash theaddictionpodcast273. That's www.patreon.com slash the Addiction Podcast 273, and make a donation of whatever amount you would like. Thank you for supporting us.
1: Crawling back to this house with a handout going, hey, I think I'm going to take you up with that offer. And My dad was just floored. He's like, he was there when the prosecutor told me that I was going to go, you know, this is what was going to happen. And I said, I've got a drug test I'm going to take tomorrow. I'm going to fail it. This would, That would make my fourth time to violate probation and I ended up uh, violating, well, I took the test the next day, but I immediately went into rehab. Uh, And um, that was when, and then so, and the rehab was out of the jurisdiction that I was supposed to stay in. So (laughs) I technically violated five times, but uh, but luckily my probation officer was a great guy, very uh, social guy, very wanted to, actually genuinely wanted to help people. And he said, and he'd worked with the rehab center before. So he was, he was said, yeah, and it was long-term. So it would serve the purposes of keeping me in a, you know, not out continuing to break the law and, you know, get me help at the same time. So it worked in the best interest of everybody for me to just go to rehab.
0: And uh, now, what kind of rehab was that, Bobby?
1: I went to the Narconon program.
0: Oh, okay. okay. I
1: did go to the Narconon program and, and, uh, because for me, um, I didn't feel like that medications was an answer, and I just couldn't get into the group setting of a 12-step program. Um, So I just thought, this, and I was big on the vitamins and the sauna, and so that was what appealed to me. Um, um, Okay. And my sister knew that. Actually, I knew that because I had (laughs) had discussion with her about rehab before.
0: Interesting. uh, So. Okay. And when was that? When was it that you got clean?
1: That was August 26th of 2000 was the day I walked onto the property of Narconot. So it's been over almost 21 years.
0: Yep. Well, very well done on almost 21 years. I had a gentleman on the podcast and said he really didn't want to be heavily validated for being clean and sober. And I said, well... I'm going to do it anyway, because I know it's not easy. So I'm going to tell you very well done. Thank you. So what led you then into doing what you do today? Interventions. How did you, how did you get into that?
1: Well, I, uh, became involved. One of the things that when I was on the program, I showed up, uh, Bobby Wiggins showed up and he actually, um, was talking about doing drug prevention, drug, drug education. And he gave a presentation to the student body at the, at the at the center and um i wanted to do that i said i decided right then i said I, I want to do that because i had my son was eight years old at the time i have two sons one's 20 he's well, the one i'm talking about now is 29 now but he was eight years old at the time and um you know i wanted to be able to this information that i was learning was not well you know i had been to it just wasn't out there and i said i want this could help kids not choose not to do drugs, because had I known this information, I probably wouldn't have made the bad decision. I don't know. I mean, I would be less likely to have made the bad decision.
0: You are listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast, or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. Or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. We appreciate you listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. We don't do this podcast because we are former addicts. We don't do this podcast because we have loved ones who have suffered from addiction. We do this podcast because we feel that addiction is one of the biggest problems facing the world today, and that no matter who you are, no matter your religion, no matter your income status, no matter your race, no matter anything about you, addiction affects you. This podcast is a free resource for anybody looking for help with addiction. If you would like to help us in our fight against addiction, go to www.patreon.com theaddictionpodcast273. That's www.patreon.com theaddictionpodcast273. And make a donation of whatever amount you would like. Thank you for supporting us. You know, it's it, it's interesting that you say that. I'm while I'm not 100% familiar with the drug education that um, is is part of Narcanon. I'm familiar with the Truth About Drugs, wow. and I my thought has always been that if we if we can acknowledge that children are not stupid, right. and that if given the correct and truthful information, not just a dogmatic say no because I said so, but if they're given the actual information, they'll make better informed choices. Right. So it's interesting that you put it that way because that's what I believe anyway.
1: That's, I've actually got, that's the truth. I mean, the truth is, is the kids are pretty smart and they're they're very smart and we need to just give them the information and that way the responsibility can be theirs and whether, you know, and it's because it's, it's very confusing. I mean, even for me, I mean, not that people intentionally do it, but like, okay, so these drugs are bad, but this is okay, you know, and they don't, people don't understand the consequences of the example that they set. And kids can actually then become informed and make their own decisions about what they want to do. So right. I, when, I, when I was doing drug education, um, you know, I asked the kids, Have you ever seen a drug addict? Yeah, I was okay, what'd they look like? Okay, well they would tell you know, they look, you know, bad on the street, you know, very malnourished and basically terrible. And I'd say, Okay, what do you think they look like when they were your age?
0: Mm, <laughs> was, wow!
1: Look around the room because this is you know they're like mm. ah I see.
0: <laughs> yeah, seriously. Wait a second. You mean they look like me, and then they turned into that?
1: <laughs> yeah. hmm. Do you think wow. that when they were your age that they grew up thinking they were going to look you know go and look what they looked like, and do you think that? Because most of the time they're going to say, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a police officer. Or, I want to be, you know, a doctor or a lot, you know, those type, pilot, something of that sort, you know. Because um, yep. I remember asking myself when I graduated high school in the year 2000, where am I going to be? You know, I'm 17 years old. At the time. Said, well, how, where am I going to be in the year 2000? I want to, to be 35 years old. And so I had no idea I'd be looking at seven years in the federal penitentiary and going to rehab.
0: So I not kind of what you put on your list of your bucket
1: list. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, wasn't know,
0: on, that doesn't get, get on there. <laughs> right,
1: right. So exactly. So to answer, answer your question, I started out doing drug prevention and then okay. led to other things. Uh got into where I was doing the aftercare uh with I was doing a lot of drug prevention and I'd got some other people trying to do drug prevention and education. And then I got into doing aftercare with the uh but then I got the opportunity to, you know, my uh, my the opportunities that I've had in my life are miraculous I you know it truly is a miracle but uh, I got to set up uh, opportunity to set up a, a rehab facility also be a medical uh, medical detoxification liaison between you know the rehab center and uh, and medical detox centers and things like that so and then uh, then when I was uh, I, I spent some time at Hawaii and I got to where I was doing interventions out of Hawaii So I was also involved with the admissions of getting somebody into the program, but also doing interventions. And so that's where I kind of led into where I do what I do now.
0: I have a question. Do you think, thank you for sharing that. Sorry. Do you think that the whole subject of interventions gets enough attention or like is, you know, is, yeah, it gets enough attention, I guess you would say, because to me, one of the most difficult things that an addict has to go through is making the decision that they're going to get help. And right. I just, I, you don't hear about that many interventionists, at least I don't.
1: Well, right. It, the thing is, is a like, matter of fact, I just talked to a family today and, uh, you know, they're very successful, you know, professional people. But, you know, the, the brother told me, he said, you know, we've been dealing with this for a few years now. And we just now decided to get a professional involved. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, and, and it goes for everybody because nobody, everybody thinks that they can handle this. But it's kind of like going and they don't see, well, some of the things that I go over with them, they say, oh, well, I've said that to him. I've done this and I've done And, and maybe they inevitably they haven't done it as, in an organized fashion such as an intervention. So right. it's a process that you go through there. It's designed to produce certain results. And uh, people can't see that. Um, so there's many reasons why a person, I mean, an interventions just a touch on intervention is going to happen. Regardless, I mean, of some sort, whether it be legal or whether it be health or whether it be, there's going to be a consequence that's going to stop that behavior.
0: Very good point. And Uh, I think, you know, for anybody listening who has a loved one who is addicted, um, you know, you can either wait for the judge to intervene and send your loved one to prison, or you can wait until they overdose and almost die. That could be a form of intervention. or. You could hire somebody like Bobby. And yes, I'm, I'm saying hire. He doesn't do it for free, but he's successful at it. And it's like, what's it worth to you to have your loved one actually get into treatment? I mean, why right. wait? Why wait? You know?
1: Right. Well, I tell you, even when I, my son was older, um, uh, though, yeah, it's exactly. So well, a lot of times the question is, um, well, he's not that bad he's not going to have those things happening. I said, yeah, that's the reason we want to do it now.
0: Right. We don't want
1: to get that bad. Right. You want to wait until
0: he's homeless under the bridge and could potentially die or get arrested or has diseases or, and here's the thing I'm going to just add this one in. I think a lot of people don't understand that drug use has long-term negative effects on the body. So If your child, here's a good thing you could use, if your child had cancer, would you wait until it got really bad before you got them treatment? Right. Or would you want to get them into treatment as quickly as possible?
1: That's right. That's exactly Yeah. And the the, the thing with addiction is you have the problem that I run into with families is that you can see the x-ray or you can see the test results that the doctor can provide if there's those type of maladies with physically. Addiction is invisible. You can't see it. You you know. So they, they that's where but they. They know,
0: they, Bobby. You know, yeah. they know. I would know if my child was addicted. I just yeah. would. Yeah. There's indicators, and and we we've talked about that on the podcast before. Right. Um, you know, there's there's indicators.
1: Right. No, you're right. They're 100. And and that's the thing. The other thing is, like, like you guys have been, you have been seeing. Uh, one of the questions a lot of times, I don't know how bad he is. I don't know what he's addicted to. I'm like, okay, well, let's just take the drug use away. What's he doing? Is he working? Is he being responsible? Is he, you know, a lot of times they're stealing. They're doing all these things that you're talking about. The indicators are there. Yeah. Take, take away the drugs. The behavior itself is not okay. And that's an indicator that something needs to change. Right. And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess you're Right. <laughs> So the 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 sides have been there for a long time. You just have not been noticing them, or chose to ignore them, or something. So, uh, you know. Yep. I mean, it's like for me, I I had a wreck in high school. Uh, We went to this drive-in down, you know, at the next town over like I said, small town in Oklahoma, and we had a, we'd come back and we had a flipped over and went through almost the length of a football field on the roof of the car through a fence and into a plowed field. Now, a plowed field is going to slow a car down quite a bit because of the dirt, and we went almost 300 uh, 100 yards upside down. That's how fast we were going. Did that have a big impact? I got a scolding from my parents, and, that, and not that I mean I, I don't. I'm not blaming my parents. I'm just saying it was like not, you know, it was a series of. I mean, a s- series of things like that that weren't yep. taken that seriously. Yeah. So, anyway. Bobby,
0: can can you share any um, particularly standout stories? Obviously, not with names of interventions that you've done, because I think sometimes when you like even just talking about this family who's, you know, they're an upscale family, upper middle class, and, you know, aren't sure if it's bad enough or not sure why they need an intervention. But give give us some stories of um, of some things that you've encountered.
1: Well, uh, there's um, uh, many. Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> I know. I know you have to <laughs> narrow it down. I want a few stories. Uh, that, yeah, Loring. yeah. It's
1: like... Uh, um uh, well, I can give you my own personal story. One is I when I went my son, when he was starting having trouble, I didn't have any evidence of him using drugs. But I emotionally, I'm trying to handle this. And i and I'm I do this for a living. This was about 14, 15 years ago. And he didn't I didn't have any evidence. He wasn't used necessarily it wasn't a drug problem, it was just a behavior problem. But I was like trying to handle it. And I was beside emotionally beside myself. Thankfully, I have colleagues that were there going, hey, grabbing me and literally sh- figuratively shaking me and going, hey, what do you tell all these other people? Oh, this is what I tell them. Well, that's what you need to do then. <laughs> and so i had, would have to i had to go to somebody else i i couldn't handle him i, I had i did have the not no, sense to say i've got to send my son to somebody else you know, if there's too much of an emotional connection and people make that mistake they think they can handle it and they can't like,
0: I, I think very few i think very few and far between i think that there is too much emotional baggage that we have with our children and that we have with our parents, speaking from the kid's viewpoint. Right. And when the parent then all of a sudden goes, okay, now I'm not your mom. Now I'm your interventionist. The kid right. goes, no, you're my mom and I don't have to listen to you. And that's right. a very good point. And I think that's another good reason why people should really consider, you know, doing an intervention. Right. You know, with yeah. someone not doing an intervention on their own, but I mean, hiring someone to do an intervention. Right. Doing-
1: yeah. Is. One, and the other thing, too, and I do have a particular story I want to tell you about, but, um, you know, people get so frustrated. There's this emotional roller coaster of being, getting angry at this behavior and this. Uh, and then you, and then you outburst, and then you feel guilty. So then you, re, you know, it's this constant back and forth, and it does absolutely no good. And so we want to move forward. So it's a constant reaction to the person who's addicted. And a lot of times the person in it, the families are letting the person who's addicted kind of run the show. And it has to be their decision to get help. But at the same time, we have to put ourselves in a position of control and knowing how to do that is very key. And so we can get, we can move forward proactively and not be reacting to that person. I had a woman that was in, we were, she was from L.A. Her daughter was from L.A. She, But her daughter was in Tucson. She sent her to a rehab center near Tucson. And she left. She packed her bags and left. So she's on the streets of Tucson. So I, she's like, she don't doesn't know what to do. But at the same time, you know, this girl, there's not a lot of what we call leverage to motivate this person, the, the girl, to get help. I said, you know, I to, well, I guess you could just let the, let it go and see what happens. And so I don't want to do that. I said, okay, so... This would be a means of you being positive over this situation, and if it doesn't turn out well, there's always a chance that it's not going to. But at least in your mind, you'll know that you've done everything you can to help your daughter, and you can you can walk away and hopefully walk away from this uh, with knowing that you've done every possible thing. And um, lo and behold, we were able to fly out there. We met in this. i was in florida at the time but anyway i flew out there met her she flew from la we got and she looks at me and we met at the hotel Uh, she said how are we going to do this i said i have no idea (laughs) because she's on this girl's on the streets of tucson we have no idea where she's at yeah first you have uh, to find her yeah we had to find her she was in text communication with her mother and her mother could kind of track her where her phone was at so we inadvertently got this girl off this there's a place in tucson called the miracle mile and we went to start hunting around about places that we knew that her mom was supposed to bring her back. She has no idea that I'm there, the girl, the, the girl, addicted girl. But um, but we started, but she was in communication. And after all day, I mean, we're there's a miracle mile in Tucson. And it's one of the worst street places I've ever seen. And I've been in some pretty hairy, I've been in Camden, New Jersey, and also in, in the streets of San Francisco. And this is it's right up there. And uh, we saw a gang fight. We saw, you know, just... All kinds of stuff. And um, finally, I just, I started basically, I said, here's what we're going to do. Her and her mother were very close, this girl, but she was kind of running her mother around. And you find, I just finally said, give me your phone. I started texting her. I said, okay, where do you want me, where do you want me to drop your stuff? I'm going to, what do you mean? I said, I'm I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm going home. I was texting as I was the mother what are you talking about? I'm just not ready yet. I said, well, I'm ready. I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I'm going home I'm dropping your stuff off. And, um, she said, well, no. And she, I forget what exactly what she said, but I said, all right, I'll I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave your stuff at the Tiki motel room 23 with Roxanne. Cause there is a person in room 23 at the Tiki motel. We talked to her and, uh, and, um, And I think that she probably knew that she was there too. So she knew exactly (laughs) that we were, you know, and we're going to leave it with Roxanne and you can pick your stuff up there. And a matter of fact, I'm having the rest of your stuff in my house mailed there. And this, the girl just came out of the woodwork. She's like, wait a minute. And um, we ended up getting her to get in an Uber and come to our hotel. And we did the intervention at the hotel and her, the girl and I were on the way to the airport that night. You know, but it was one of those things that And this mother was a professional. She was a psychologist for the uh, penal system over women's prisons in California. And she was like, I never would have been able to do this. And I said, well, if I were you, I probably wouldn't have been able to either. It's too much, too emotional. So,
0: right. I think, I I think that just, that makes that point again, that, you know, as parents, there's too much emotional baggage and you need, you need a third party like. Bobby, and I'm not trying to say everybody needs to hire Bobby, although you probably should if you need an interventionist, but you need someone like that who can be a little bit tough when you've basically been enabling your son, daughter, mom, or dad.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, get some professional help, get some professional guidance, you know, get somebody who's been there and, you know, you should feel comfortable and confident with their help uh but yeah it's it's too emotional it's it's next to impossible so
0: right what what give me give me some more give me another story I want another story about a successful intervention that you did that sticks out in your mind
1: well there's another one um is a girl that I went to in New York, and this was an impossible situation, and it was a single mom, a widow, and the girl was early twenties. She was with her boyfriend, who was a uh, addict. Um, and the mom had, the family had been looking for this girl for like two weeks. But she was in New York, upper, upstate New York. And um, and the same thing. Well, what, you know, the chances of this working, because they don't even know where the girl's at. And I said, you know, but the mom said, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can. And so she pulled out all the stops, which is uh, and she, brought me up there and i went and talked to her for quite a while i got all the names of people that were you know where she was going and there was one particular little pizza shop that where some of the friends worked i didn't know anything i just kind of knew you know uh, but i went to the pizza shop i literally sat in there for about three and a half hours i was looking for one kid that was a friend of the boyfriend and i was just listening and I was sitting there eating pizza, you know, very slowly reading the paper on my phone. And finally, this kid, guy, a regular customer, walks in and he said, "Hey Dylan, or I forget the kid's name. Hey, how you doing? Glad to see you." I'm like, "There, that's the that's the kid right there." So I'm watching him. So I waited until afterwards, and the kid was the manager of the store. But apparently, these kids had been in a car and they got pulled over by the police, and there was a gun and drugs involved. And and this kid was in the car with the girl and her boyfriend and. So I waited out, so I sat out in my car and I waited, but it's another two hours for the kid to get off work. And I caught him walking out this, out to his car and I said, Hey, and, and again, I'm using Dylan as a fictitious name. Hey. I said, Hey Dylan, I said, you remember me? Cause he's the one, cause I wouldn't ask him. I said, Hey man, tell me what's the best thing on the menu. And we got, you know, had a conversation about that. You oh, know, yeah, this is what I like. And he gave me the whole rundown and it was very helpful. And pretty you could tell he's a pretty good kid, but I said, Hey man, you remember me? I'm the guy that you know had the pizza earlier. Yeah, yeah, I remember. What'd you think? I said, Yeah, it was really good. Great, great, great recommendation. I really liked it. He said, but I got a question. So then I started asking him about the kid the girl and her boyfriend. And you could tell, I could see the reaction on his face. I said, Okay, mm. I said, Look, man, and I obviously I looked like a cop and so, look, man, I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble, but the family is very concerned for this girl's well-being. I said, it would be in everybody's best interest if this girl was to surface and be able to talk to her mother. I said, you know, no, no trouble, no, no, none of that. I said, but, you know, apparently there was this incident last Thursday where some kids got pulled over in the car. And there was a gun involved, the cop, there was a report written, and there was a kid named Dylan. And, oh, wait a minute. Is that, you know, was that you? <laughs> That wasn't you, was it? You seemed like too good. You wouldn't be involved in anything like that. But you could tell that. <laughs> anyway, that I I, I was on to something. And so I got back in the car and about 30 minutes later, the mom calls me and says, Well, you've got it <laughs> yeah. you did something. Yeah. We now know where she's at and we know what house she's in and uh you know so we found out exactly where the girl was i said okay good so i went and sat I'm um, parked in front i'm like how am i gonna do this it was well it was early the next morning she's in this house with the boyfriend and the boyfriend the grandmother literally had went over there and um tried to get the girl to leave with her and the boyfriend because we, once we found out i said go have the grandmother go over there and say hey we want you to come visit you know i want to see you surely the boyfriend wouldn't let, would let her leave with her grandmother. Well, the boyfriend wouldn't. He literally kept his arms around. No, you're not taking her. You know, and the girl wouldn't leave. And so the grandmother had to leave. And it was, it was, this was, and the mother was even there, the boyfriend's mother. And so I'm like, how the heck am I? So I went and talked to the girl's brother, or uncle. And he was kind of a character that was connected to people. <laughs> he said, give me till the next morning. This boyfriend is not going to be a problem. And I, didn't want to ask how that was gonna happen. So I'm like, but obviously we don't want to be getting in anybody in trouble. He said, Yeah, don't yeah. worry about any bad. Just the boyfriend. Well, so I'm waiting outside of the house and I'm thinking, man, I don't know how the heck this is gonna happen. But the, they walk, I saw him walk, I, I drove by and I saw two kids on the side of the street, and it was the girl and her boyfriend. And I drive by, I take snapped a picture. I'm driving by and I sent it to the mom. I said, Is this her? She said, yes, that's her and that's him. And I said, okay, so I'm watching them. And they literally made a drug deal. They made a drug deal as I was sitting there watching them. And they went into this house. And so I called 911. The police showed up. And I. But by the time the deal had already been made and they were walking back to their house. So we ended up um, getting, uh, this is a long story, but it, <laughs> we got the guy, the kid ended up getting arrested before he made it back to the house. So then okay. the grandmother was able to go back over there, get the girl. We took her about 20 miles away, did the intervention, drove all night across the state of New York, went got to Philadelphia. I think we got a morning flight out and ended up getting her into rehab. But it was quite, it was one of those things that there's not a, we don't know how we're going to do this, but we just <laughs> had the intention of getting it done. And it, the girl's uh, actually, I think she's about to graduate college now.
0: So. Oh, wow. That's so. awesome. You're like a private investigator. I think I think there should be a reality show based on what you do, Bobby. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that was a long story, but uh, it's a very, it's one of those hopeless situations. You have no idea, what. how am I going to do this? But yet we yeah. decided we're going to go in and it, we figured it out. It worked out positively. So
0: Right. But yeah. then you also do interventions that might actually be like with the family when the addict is not necessarily on the streets, but you know still living at home or still living close by and 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 just ru- just really basically how do you do an intervention like that
1: Well that's that, that um, the majority of the of convers- uh, the interventions are exactly that their family's been living right there and so we basically you know there's basically five stages there's the planning preparation execution and you always hope and pray for the best but you prepare for the worst you prepare for the person to say no what are the consequences what are they they ask me what are you going to do if the person says no and i say that well it all depends on what you are going to do because this behavior this dynamic is what they call there's a term called familial homeostasis what that means is family and homeostasis means desire to stay the same remain unchanging. So the family has to be willing to change their way they're doing things. And so I ask them, what are you willing to do? Are you willing to stop enabling? There's always an enabler. Every fire needs oxygen and every attic needs an enabler. So they're getting the support from somewhere. Uh, So uh, typically, once we can change that dynamic of how that relationship happens, then we can go in and we can effectively um, – change the whole situation simply and i and i just thought of another situation of family in northern california same thing the guy was 30 years old living at home with his mother you walk into his bedroom literally syringes all over the floor you couldn't take a step by stepping on a syringe he had abscesses from his knees down to his ankles living there with his mother so i haven't spent a lot of time with the mother going look you know we got to confront this this is your son's going to die There's not a question that, you know, and like you mentioned earlier, the physical complications that a lot of the friends that I had, you know, it's going to get, they're dead. I mean, there's probably over a dozen friends of mine that would always kind of make fun of me for getting in trouble, but which is what led me to the point of getting help, but they didn't, they didn't get in trouble, but they're dead now because of liver failure, heart failure, sepsis, all kinds of things. Right. So, but anyway, uh, we got the kid's agreement to go. We sat down with him and spent a couple of days getting his agreement to go. But we, you know, the, the but he finally, it had finally impinged. Number one, we could offer him some hope of a way out. And two, that the mother was done. So she was, she, she finally said, look, you, you know, this is, we're done. And we're done with this. I'm not going to do continue this anymore. And that was where, so we, we had two things there that helped us
0: with that. So.
1: Anyway, I hope
0: that? Uh, no, it's it's totally what I was looking for. And I think, you know, you make the very good point. It's like, it's not so much what you, the interventionist, is going to do if the guy says no. But it's how is the family and the loved ones? How are they going to change what they've been doing? Because obviously doing the same thing that they've been doing, the right. whole while this person's addicted, has not worked. Right. So I can, I can totally uh, – it's just a good answer. I – I so admire you for kind of, you kind of go into the lion's den in many ways, you know? Um, Yeah. And then you did, you put together a, an actual course on your website that people can buy. Have people been using it? Has it been successful?
1: The success rate for that people doing that course i mean it's things that people go over i mean it's it's kind of standard operating procedure for an interventionist these things because uh, i've worked with many interventions before i came became one and i've also collaborated with lots of other people but this is kind of people kind of find their own way of doing things that works but the better i i, I would have to the people ask me what's the hardest part about an intervention i said getting the family prepared and ready to operate on the same page as a unit is the hardest part. Once I do that, the likelihood of getting that person help is, so I put the course together as a, as a means of number one is from a financial aspect If the person is not able to absorb the expenses of an intervention, because not only do you have to pay there's the fees and also the expenses of the intervention is to arrive and getting the person treatment. So, you know, this was an inexpensive option to be, uh basically understand and then it's also an indicator for me is because this problem is hard enough to to confront Mm -hmm. I have to get if the person if the family a lot of times are not able to confront the information that they need to have to solve the problem so that indicates to me where who you know what how much work do I need to put into this and it also it makes my job easier but for the families that have done this course and we go do the intervention it's almost like they they go in on they they know what to do now and they have certainty on what they're doing. So once they have that certainty, it takes a lot of the questions out, and they can move forward. And a lot of times, they'll put together the oh yeah, we can do it like this or this is how we can do. And you you know, and they'll tell me, they'll remind me of what's in the videos. They'll say, oh yeah, you said this, you said that. <laughs> right. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs>
0: so and, and, and you know, Bobby, I got to say, not everybody who has a very successful modality such as yours, not everybody's willing to share. And I know that you charge for the course, but I also know it's, you don't charge very much for the course. Um, and the fact that you're willing to take your expertise and put it out there so that someone could potentially, you know, do their own intervention. I think that's, I, I think it's very commendable. I really do.
1: Thank you for that. I, it, you know, it, it again. It says mean You know, people talk about well, oh, about money, and I'm like, well, you know, if I were going to send it to make money, there's lots of other things that I could do. <laughs> this is one of this pick the hardest one of the hardest professions there is. <laughs> make it all about the money? No, there's lots of other things I could do. So yeah, uh, that makes
0: that makes sense. Bobby, before we were, before we did the interview today, you told us a little bit about some of your plans for the future, which I think are very exciting. Can you kind of give us a little preview of what's coming down the line?
1: Well, I do I do want, did want to talk about my book that I have. It's on my website. It's called The Secrets to Successful Recovery. And it talks about the different things that a person, the barriers that a person needs to overcome to achieve recovery. You know, if you want to learn about what those barriers are uh, and how to overcome them, if, you know, or, or or the idea of how to overcome them, uh, they're in this book. Also, the do's and don'ts of how to interact with somebody when they're in treatment. How to what to do upon re- completing treatment. The, there's ten steps in here that actually are not. I I, would, I don't want to confuse that with the twelve steps or anything. But there's ten things in here that a person does if they can do that. These things. Um, then um, they're going to greatly increase their chances of recovery. And the truth is, is that if they can't do those 10 things, these are based off of not only addiction, but also anybody that's successful uh, in life, in business Mm. or anything, they pretty much do these things. They they surround themselves with positive people, good, smart people. They surround, you know, they are ethical. They show up early. They go the extra mile. They contribute to their communities. They, they they do successful people do those things anyway. And so it's listed out. And I I went to an entrepreneur convention a few years ago, and I was listening to everybody. And I was like, wow, I mean, these guys are all regardless of where, they had all different backgrounds of where they came from, and I, these this would be perfect for a, if an addict could do these things. They would empower themselves to the point of, you know, overcoming their obstacles that they're having in life. So I put together this book. It's it's uh, fourteen ninety five on Amazon, fourteen ninety nine or fourteen ninety five on Amazon. It's about sixty eight pages or something. It's very easy. I'm very excited about this book, as well as um, I have some friends that I've collaborated with that we've put together uh, a life coaching or sober coaching program where we reach out to churches and community groups and we we do uh basically uh, zoom virtual meetings or uh seminars over um talking about the barriers to overcoming addiction and and then from that, we've now developed a life coaching, sober coaching program curriculum to where we can help people coming out of rehab maintain, have a connection with people that, and put together an individualized program based on their needs to help them maintain sobriety. So it's very exciting.
0: Wow. Now, is if someone wants information on that and um, or just information on you, can they get information on that program at newmaninterventions.com or
1: they newmanintervention.com they can call the number they can go to the website okay. fill out the form and we will definitely get them in contact i mean i could tell you more about it uh there is a particular um a website angellifecoaches.org um but and we would direct them and get to, a lot of this stuff is being developed but it's right. in the works i mean i have a person now that i'm working with to, to start sober coaching The person so we have the curriculum developed, but you know, promotional pieces and all that are gonna be forthcoming very quickly. So okay,
0: so there's Newman Interventions.com if you need the intervention, and then there's life Coaching.com.
1: And that
0: that is for how to stay sober, basically.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Cool. Yeah. Bobby, I cannot thank you enough for being on the podcast today before I let you go. If you could just give one message to the people listening who have a loved one who's addicted, what would that message be?
1: I don't know. It's a very long message.
0: (laughs) That's okay. I didn't say it had to be short.
1: uh, It's never never too soon to do an intervention. It's always too late. Right. Right. So it's never too soon. I don't know how bad the addiction is. Oh, okay. Well, why do we want to wait till that? Let's stop the behavior now. Let's get this person on the right track. You know, this person truly wants help. They don't want to go down this path. Let's help them, you know? So that's my, let's let's get this handled. And so we can all enjoy the rest of our lives. So. Perfect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Bobby, for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. So Bobby Newman, successful interventionist. What are we going to talk about on your interview next week?
1: We're going to talk about uh, the need to do an intervention and why a person should go ahead and consider seriously consider and do an intervention because it's never too soon to do an intervention. It's always too late. People wait till the tragedy happens, the overdose, the car accident, the legal problems, the mounting. And then a lot of times these mount and keep going. They pay about tens of thousands of attorney fees. Let's do the intervention. Let's stop all that. Let's avoid that. Let's, let's, let's put all our efforts to stopping the madness and getting this person help. I have... Um, 25 tips to a successful intervention that I send out to people. I also have an intervention course that I send to people that help them learn how to do an intervention. So that's what we're going to talk about on the podcast.
0: I hope you enjoyed the interview with Bobby Newman. I think that um, some very good points were made. I think you don't want to wait until you find out how bad it is before you hire someone like Bobby to do an intervention with your loved one. I want to give you Bobby's 800 number so you can call him. It is 866-989-4499. I also want to let you know that he has a free downloadable PDF called 25 Tips to Successful Intervention that you might want to get from him because if you need to do an intervention, this is going to help you get ready for it and set up for it. And you can find that by going to NewmanInterventions.com. Reach out to Bobby and he'll send it to you. We will talk to you again next week. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, point of no return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at
1: yahoo.com.